You're listening to Cross the Line 1524, the common man's podcast. But I came here for just one drink. It's Cross the Line 1524. Join us at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy with a glass of bourbon, table 12, as the guys sit around and discuss distilleries, common day events, or whatever comes to the bar top. That's right. Cross the line, 1524. All right, here we're here with Cross the Line, 1524. I'm Alan Stanger with Dwayne Bischoff, Scotty Bourbon, Jeff Montag, Mike Gardner, and on the other end here we've got the world famous. <laughs> world I don't know famous, about that. Don't know yeah. about that. So introduce yourself, Christian. Um, My name is Christian Roper. I am uh, several things. I've called myself treasure hunter, um, explorer, filmmaker. I just have a passion for a lot of the stories I grew up hearing, and and I've been chasing those and retelling those as I've gotten older. Awesome. So our our listeners... um, Our new listeners probably don't know. Our old listeners. We've had Christian on here uh, several times. Actually, this is next week's our third year of podcasting. So this is works out perfect. It's the third time we've had you on, Christian. Yeah. We saw you on Beyond Oak Island and reached out to you, and it uh, worked out pretty good. Pretty good. So what have you been up to, man? First of all, let's talk about the treasure you were hunting on Beyond Oak Island. Yeah. So what yeah. ended yeah. up there? So... I will give you guys several inside scoops. Um, That's what we're looking for. Here for. Several exclusives for your podcast. Um, That was a story I heard when I was seven years old. And I was told this story about this this pirate treasure in East Texas. And being 200 miles away from the coast, you know, that's kind of ironic to hear – about a, a, a pirate story, you know, we're nowhere near a beach. But when you understand the the lore surrounding Jean Lafitte, who was famous in Texas and Louisiana, it becomes pretty obvious that every waterway that is somehow connected to the Gulf of Mexico has some story attached to him. The story I was told was that of Hendricks Lake. Hendricks Lake grew to, in the, in the late 1970s, grew to one of the most popular treasure legends in the country. And it's because most people uh, across the, the country were privy to these news articles that would come out every few months about what treasure hunters were up to there. And every time they would find a new piece that, that made an entire country feel like these homemade metal detectors in Texas, these you know backwoods treasure hunters were on the brink of finding something related to Jean Lafitte. Now, all of these come to an end in 1969 when uh, there was a searcher by the name of Charles Grice who gave up and he was really the last kind of well-funded, well, uh, like well-intending search at Hendricks Lake. So there was about 50 years of silence I was told this story around 2003, around 2019, after I graduated college. For whatever reason, it just came back to me. Of I remember hearing this story as a kid. 
you know, I've, I've got another friend, his name is Braxton McKnight, who he, he loves history. He loves genealogy, things like that. We're just sitting on the couch one day and I said, have you ever thought about looking into this? I haven't heard anything of that story other than I know people looked for it. It was just rumor, hearsay. And it, it was just something that stuck with you. And I brought this up with uh, Rick Lagina in the war room. That it, it's, it's like a Reader's Digest moment for me. It, you know, he, he had this story that he read as a kid and it stuck with him his entire life. It was the exact same situation with me and this legend that I was told as a kid. So where do we start? It all started with a Google search. And through Google, you get in these, um, kind of not credible chat rooms and you get these, uh, <laughs> news articles that are all over the place. And so you're like, where the heck do we find Those, so some we stuff came up with may this not idea. be true, but it's on the internet. So it's all true, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. came up with this idea of, well, in, in all these treasure shows, there's one thing that a lot of them are missing, and it's that you don't really get to see the humanity of treasure hunting. You, you don't get to see how this affects families. For example, in the story we looked into, there were families that moved to Texas from different states, you know, completely, completely altering the lives of their children and grandchildren just because their father or grandfather believed that there was silver in this lake and that he could find it. You know, you don't hear about the the stories of the um, someone's daughter was was given a the detonator for a stick of dynamite when they were dynamiting the bottom of the lake, and how it's like the most still the most vivid the most vivid picture in her mind, you know, into her eighties and nineties of blowing all these fish and snakes out of the water at this lake, trying to help her dad try to find treasure. And so that's that's the the goal that we took with um, what we called Sunken Silver. It was originally a documentary. Now it is a three, possibly four part series, and it followed my search. You know, from the moment where we decided to reignite that search after after fifty years of silence, follows it through the entire um, Beyond Oak Island saga. It follows it through all of the dives we did, all of the leads we took. But most importantly, I think it follows us into the living room of, of where this one story traveled to. You know, we, we went to Iowa for this. We went to um, several different states. We went to Louisiana. We went all over Texas. And it was a big deal of mine when we filmed these interviews with children, grandchildren, family members of these treasure hunters recounting these stories. We said, you know, we don't want to do this in a, in a, something like a war room. We don't want it overproduced. We said, we want to meet the story where it is. And if this treasure legend was told in your living room, in the family home, we want to do the story there. We, we want to go, we don't care what your living room looks like. We told several people this. We don't care how small it is, what it looks like. We want to meet you where the story is. And so we went to all these small towns, tracked down all these family members, and uh, went after retelling the story. And in doing so, we actually ended up solving some stuff. So in doing that, I think, I think legends are a great thing, even if they're not true. I, I think I've told people you can take 99% of treasure stories 
and immediately throw them out as, as being true. In terms of piracy and outlaws and things like that, there are a lot of these myths about buried treasure and, and stockpiling things. There are very few real accounts of things being buried. You know, the, the kind of bellwether test for if a treasure legend is true or not is has it captured the attention of real archaeology or is it is still in the realm of pseudo-archaeology as it is? I mean, in the case of Oak Island, there are real archaeologists involved. We know that there are layers to peel back from that story. There's there's a real event there. Um, and in what we did, we were not treasure hunters to begin with. I would not even say we were filmmakers to begin with, but the beauty of these hometown legends is... Um, and I tell people all this this all the time. If you want to become a treasure hunter, hunt treasure. That's as easy as it is. There's no formal training. A lot of it's in in libraries and in Google searches, and in learning how to communicate with people outside of your own generation. Um, we we had spoken with a man who was, I think it was about two months before he passed away, and we talked to him about his experiences at the lake helping his father search. And, and that's, you know, such a meaningful thing to me, but these stories, I think 99% of them you can throw out right off the bat. And, and it, it came about, if you want to look at it, you know, from a kind of a psychological or sociological perspective at the end of world war II, all these men return and all of a sudden, these American families, you know, the men have free time and they have money. This was the rise of the success of metal detectors in the U.S. and the success of treasure hunting magazines. And it's, there's a direct correlation if you look at sales charts of metal detector sales, of magazines like True West, of these um, movies about these lost Spanish shipwrecks and, and outlaw gold and things like that. There's a, there's a direct correlation with these things rising in the early 50s and late 50s. So a, a lot of it comes from that, but still there is real history to be found there. I think legends serve a huge purpose. I don't care if a story is true or false. I think they all deserve to be retold because there's value in that. You know, there's value in having a having a family or having a small town the the town of Tatum with Hendricks Lake when this story was most popular it was you know as poor as as an east texas town could get at that time but it gave them hope it gave people something to believe in it 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 was something that set your town apart and i think the value in that is so meaningful and and i've never you know, if, if I find something that's not true, I will never say this story should never be continued. Um, but we had found there were several parts of the story based on real history. And the really good thing about legends is that they're a really good way of teaching people about real history. Um, for example, if you ask most archaeologists why they became archaeologists, it was through but you know legends are a great way to teach people about real history it's it's through looking at the things that Lafitte may not have done it really taught me about 
who he was as a person. I think it says more about you as a person, what people say you did that you never did, than what you actually did. You know, there's a, there's a reason to your character. There's a reason to this history why we tend to add things to it, these, these gray areas and these blank spaces. And the, the story that we uh, chased for Beyond Oak Island and Sunken Silver, to, to me, is, is the perfect example of how folklore is impactful, how it you know, affects communities, how it carries, how it's a vehicle for understanding real history and how there can be hidden truths within that. After the two years of diving that we did and comparing it to several other stories, we found two other leads of real historical events that we feel the Hendrix Lake legend may be directly based on. And we have a direct connection with the two names associated with the Hendrix Lake story. Another event that was going on in Arkansas that actually did involve Lafitte um, that may be the real inspiration for the story. And so we, what we are presenting in this, in the series is that while there were searches for over a hundred years in this lake for pirate silver, it was actually loosely based on uh, spying on the United States and an effort to spy on the United States by Jean Lafitte right after the, um, uh, soon after the battle of new Orleans and, uh, that that was part of the reason for the creation of this legend. We've also been able to connect it with a um, real tribal battle that occurred in Texas. And there is, there's another historical situation where a group a is on the run from group B and they lose, um, they lose something of historical value. So with this series, we've also, we've also gone to, gone as far as we are now working with a tribe within Texas that we feel has a connection with this story. And we are attempting to recover um, something that we believe they lost. So it's, it's, it's moving in several different directions. That's wild. Well, I mean, and listen to your story. I think part of the, the nuance of it is going back and getting those stories from those which are now you know old people that you know they they were kids or you know of the of the original searchers i mean like the gentleman you said who passed away shortly after you he he gave his story i mean that might have been you know one of the highlights of his life being able to tell that story again i mean that was his life when he was growing up and kids don't always realize what things mean when it's happening but when they reach of age and start looking back i mean that might have been, you know, one of his fondest memories, and he was able to share it and get it recorded for history. So, you know, you've permanently recorded his his story, um, you know, as to what his life was and what he did. So, I mean, that 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 to me is really cool too. That you've kind of preserved for history, you know, these stories from from people back then that, that were looking for this. Yeah, and it's a different time in history too. It, <laughs> there's one story I remember that he told his father wanted to drain the lake and the man that, that owned a property on the lake and owned the lake at that time, he was known for carrying around these pocket knives and the man's father that was the treasure hunter wanting to drain the lake. This effort to drain the lake was actually backed by the local sheriff 
And so this treasure hunter and the sheriff show up wanting to drain the lake and they say, you know, we'll give you a cut. You're going to be very rich. Well, this man sold, um, he sold fish and he sold eggs and he rented out boats. And so the, the lake was really his, his only means of income at that time. And they talked to him about draining the lake and the argument got very heated. The sheriff puts his hand on his gun and the man with the knife said, Sheriff, I'll cut your throat before you can get your gun out of his, uh, out of your holster. And so the conversation ended pretty quickly and, and I go, okay, this is one of those stories that just does not get out. It, it stays within the family or it stays within one or two people and no one ever hears it. And you never hear about the time that this lake was almost drained or a sheriff almost got involved in an incident. Uh, but it's just amazing the depth of this story and how many other stories are out there with similar, you know, arms and, and side stories that go every single direction. Yeah, I would think that's one of the more intriguing things about what you do and maybe what you've learned in the process of all these, right, is and <clears throat> we talk about it here, just us doing this podcast, where this has led us to, to places and people that we never thought we would talk to and hearing stories. So I'm certain that when you're talking about the these legendary stories through through uh, multiple generations that that is just you know i think you know it can it can become kind of a positive never-ending thing because you find another little branch to travel down and more people to talk to right yeah it's 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 cool it's a cool um burden to have as a, as a storyteller, as a podcaster, a filmmaker, um, whatever you do, and you find those things and, and those conversations you capture that can entertain people, it means a lot and you don't necessarily always think about it. You know, I was talking to some podcasters um, a couple weeks ago and they brought up that they're very big paranormal podcasters and they were talking about, you know, just how how boring it gets sometimes or how they don't understand that, that I, you know, I, I gave the story to him. I was like, do you guys know that there's probably someone going on long drives to chemo every week and, and listening to your podcast is like the one bright spot in their week and how cool it is that we are in a situation that we get to sit down and tell stories and inspire people or make people laugh or, capture these stories and, and preserve them for the next generation. It's a really cool thing um, getting able to preserve these things, to, to put this stuff out there. And to share. I yeah. mean, that's, that's, that's a, di- you know, storytelling period is a dying art. You know, it's, it's, there's stories that in, unless they get repeated and recorded, they'll be lost. It's part of history. It's just like you see old towns that are just fading away. So are some of the stories that come from there. And some may get embellished a little bit, but you know that's part of the part of the part of the the what attracts people to it. So when when can we see your series on this? When it, when when are you gonna when are you gonna have filming and production all wrapped up? So we are done filming right now. Um, we are writing the last 
two episodes right now. Episode one is written. Episode one is nearly fully edited. We will be getting it out through the same thing we got Expedition Dogman out through, which is a distributor called Film Hub, which I, I really like. It helps me get out there, and, and it's very easy to use. If you guys ever venture into the world of putting stuff out there, film-related, um, we've been able to get onto Amazon Prime, Apple TV, um, some Tubi, a, a lot of free platforms as well that make me really excited about getting this out there to everyone. So if, if there is a will to watch it, there will be a way to watch it. Um, we are hoping to finish by the end of May. There's still a trip to Arkansas I would really like to take just to follow up on something. Um, with this being my baby, something that I heard when I was a kid, and then I had ultimate creative control over it, directed, shot the whole thing. You know, it is mine. I want the information that goes out to be immaculate. And I don't want to, you know, it would break my heart if I put something out there and then someone sees it and they go, oh, yeah, you know, here's this thing that, you know, you completely overlooked. <laughs> <Yeah>. You <laughs> forgot <laughs> about this. <laughs> that, you know, I, I live next door and, and I could have told you this. You know, I would have, it's, it's just something that I want to be really thorough about. There are other things where I'm like, let's film it, put it together, put it out. But this is my baby, which is why I've held on to it for so long, because it has to be absolutely perfect by the time it it's out. But you know when it's done and you do release it, you're going to have to step back and just go, it's done, I'm out. You know, and, and Because you're, five years from now, something will pop up. Let Ten the, years from now. Yeah. Let you, the chips fall where yeah, they may. Kind you, of thing. Yeah, you've got to yeah. just do the best you can, let it go, and, and it is what it is from there. There's not um, many people that, like, every morning they get up, their main focus is a – treasure story it's uh it's like a blessing it's a disease sometimes, sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um the way my mind works i am hyper focused on one thing and i will become the world's leading expert in that thing and i until i feel like this is fully solved in my mind all the the bows are tied then i, I can't move on from it um, but what, once it is done, then I'm already looking forward to the, the next thing. There is other Lafitte stories that I've been looking into, particularly involving his death. There's another project I have been um, kind of teasing around in development um, involving the different legends around his death and Pierre's death. So if you're not super aware of that. So around 1820, when the Lafitte's were exiled again from the U.S., or, or from what is now the U.S., from Galveston Island, there are several missing years of their lives. And, and I say missing kind of in quotes. We, we have some general idea, but for the most part, we don't know exactly what they were up to. There are still questions around how they died. There are questions around whether they took anything. However, there are several different places throughout the Caribbean and Central America with, with stories of pirates that, that may have died there. There's an actual grave in Mexico that may belong to one of them. Um, 
there are other stories. There are, are death records in Colombian newspapers. There are supposed prison escapes from, from Puerto Rico. And so there's a lot of disconnect with American history there, simply because for, for many decades, a lot of these places have been inaccessible or there's been language barriers. And the last few years of their lives have not been thoroughly vetted, have not been looked at. Even this last year, I've had probably three or four different people reach out to me with stories of Jean's death. Um, most of those were in the U.S. There are several different towns and coastal cities in the U.S. that claim to be the death site of Jean Lafitte. It was a long-standing legend. Um, for many decades, it was popular. In the 1960s, it was very popular of Jean Lafitte faking his death several times and living out the rest of his life under an assumed name. Um, North Carolina, there's actually some decent evidence that, that he may have lived out the rest of his days there. I do not exactly subscribe to that, but it is very interesting. There are some very interesting ties there. There are some interesting ties to a man who may have been Jean Lafitte, may have been an alias of Jean Lafitte, and the early beginnings of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Um, it's just it's just very strange. I am personally of the opinion that Pierre died around 1821 and Jean died around 1823 um, in a battle at sea. And I believe Pierre died of fever in Mexico. And there is there was actually a body left behind and buried in the church that was washed away. But when this story talks about Pierre being left behind in Mexico, it was after this. this um, he had just evaded Spanish capture. He supposedly left behind a mistress and a son. And there are still existing stories in this uh, Maya fishing village in the Yucatan Peninsula of this pirate bloodline continuing. And there are DNA tests that could be done there. If they match with a specific record in France or a specific location in France, that could be, you know, case closed on that. That could be the actual death site of Pierre. And so th this is what I was looking into after. I was already looking ahead of looking into this, uh, these death records. And then everyone wants to know, you know, did they die with anything? Did they keep anything? For the most part, pirates were were very broke on the run. The average kind of career span of a pirate was less than two years in between the first ship you took and when you were hanged. So piracy was not exactly, you know, bathed in luxury and you've got too many coins and you know what to do with. If you did have anything, yeah, if you did have anything, you would immediately spend that on ship repairs or wasted in port. I mean, these stereotypes about pirates, you know, being alcoholic and, 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 you know, poor, all those are true. Um, they also did make most of their money in illegal slave and spice trade. They would, they would take it up the Sabine river and sell into a part of Louisiana, which is now called the neutral strip. It was a part that, France didn't want and Spain didn't want. So there was no kind of legal oversight there. And so they would swim up on the Texas border. Um, they would sail these ships up. They would, there were um, overflow slave barracks there that still have not been fully located. They would sell spices. They would sell all the goods off this ship. They would sell anything of value on the ship. They would take a lot of the ships apart, and then they were said to burn the ships somewhere in the Sabine River. 
there's actually a group coming down where I'm hoping to lead an expedition to a specific island um, down there because I was given a lead by a man who was a Boy Scout in the 50s and he camped under what he described as thinking it was the uh, um, exposed metal parts of the, the ribs of an old ship. And so I was under the opinion that part of this island may still be above ground because it is being prevented from erosion because there's still some pretty big pieces of metal there from that. Batesville Liquor Co., located at 315 Shopping Village in downtown Batesville, Indiana, your place for all your cocktail needs. Whether it's beer, wine, spirits, they've got it. They've got your tequilas, they've got your vodkas, they've got your gins, and of course, your bourbons. In fact, they do barrel picks. These are single barrels that have been hand-selected by folks at Batesville Liquor Co. just for you. Not sure which spirit you want to try? Maybe you want to go to one of their tastings. That's right. They have a tasting area right there in Batesville Liquor Co. where you can try some of the new and upcoming spirits, new and upcoming bourbons, tequilas. They do it right there in the store. You want to find out when those are? Very simple. Go to their Facebook page, Batesville Liquor Co. They list any tastings they're doing. Uh, Normally, there's a couple a week. Stop in, say hi, do a tasting. Maybe you'll find a new cocktail that you're interested in. You know, they've got it all there. You've got RTDs. Do you know what RTDs are? That's the newest fad in cocktails. It's ready-to-drink cocktails already pre-mixed in a can. Pretty simple. It's getting ready to be boat season. You buy an RTD, you put it in a cooler on ice, and you've got it right there on the water with you. That's right. Go check them out. Batesville Liquor Co. located at 315 Shopping Village in Batesville, Indiana, or Tebby Liquors located on Main Street in Brookville, Indiana. As always, tell them the Cross the Line 1524 crew sent you. Gilman's Home Centers. With 14 locations and growing. You know what? It's the party time of the year. That's right. You might need some party rentals, and they've got them. They've got bouncy houses, tents, even slushy machines for those adult party-friendly drinks. You know what? Things are heating up, which means you need to start thinking about watering options for your lawn and garden. They've got it. You know what? It may be too hot for you. They've got plenty of air conditioning units and fans just for you. Gilman Home Centers. With 14 locations in Indiana and Ohio. Are you tired of hearing the same old songs over and over on the radio? Every single hour, the same tune? Well, it's time for something different. Check out Hometown Radio USA. The best independent music, hits from yesterday, hits from today, podcasts, and so much more. Hometown Radio USA, you can find it on the web at www.hometownradiousa.com or at the App Store or on Google Play. Hometown Radio USA, reimagining radio and coming to you in your hometown. So when we talked to you last, you were getting ready to head to the Skinwalker area. So you sent us some pictures back from there, and you and I have conversed a little bit via email. So tell us exactly what happened there. Hmm. So... The, the cool thing about that place is that 
whatever you think is going on, you'll be able to find your truth. If you think it is, you know, extraterrestrial visitation, you'll be able to find your evidence for that. If you think it is some sort of government involvement, some sort of black testing, you'll be able to find your evidence for that. And you'll be able to find your evidence for hoax as well. And and we we came across all of that that week. Uh, we went to a property called Space Wolf Research. And Space Wolf Research is directly south of Skinwalker Ranch. And we didn't really know what to expect going in. I thought it would be cool to, let's do a different angle. Everyone talks about Skinwalker Ranch. How often do you hear about the neighbors? You know, if all this stuff is going on, does it really stop at this barbed wire fence? Um, and it turns out it doesn't. So barbed wire fences are not very good in, in that regard. Um, <laughs> They're not the alien area to the, the, Not Skinwalker the area, Yeah. The area to the south is in my opinion, um, more active than Skinwalker Ranch currently with what people are reporting. Um, The strangest thing that we came across was a a few days before we arrived, we were told that they were checking out this, this ranch just to make sure it was okay for us to be on. And the owner and security guard texted us kind of freaking out. And what had happened, and I, I shared this with you guys in the last show, but there had been a 9,000-pound storage container that was somehow, without any tire tracks, without any markings, anything, it was somehow lifted, twisted, and set down. Um, We know it may have been twisted at a height of less than three or four inches because there are a couple rocks that are pushed along the ground, and there are markings of we know exactly how it was picked up, how it was twisted, and how it was set down based on these rocks. We know the direction it went. It's just strange. Um, yeah, that was a strange picture. You had right. that picture. Yeah. Uh, one, of more, one of the more common things, we, we stayed at probably 50 feet away from the shipping container, um, right on the fence overlooking Skinwalker Ranch. So we could see what Skinwalker Ranch was doing during the day, we could stare at, you know, the homesteads. We could we could see the entirety of that property overlooking Skinwalker Ranch. And um, I've got a few friends through you know television connections that were on the crew and that and that are currently filming out there, and and, and everyone at Prometheus. And it's another Prometheus show. Everyone at Prometheus is friends. So I've heard some stories about the place. I just knew it was weird. I didn't have any expectations going in. It just wanted to experience something. I wanted to see something cool. And and before then, I told you guys that I was in Guatemala with the the Maya, um, documenting some stories of the Maya. And I had an experience actually seeing and filming some lights that would come out of a place called Lake Atilan in uh, central Guatemala. And they, it was this, this native story of these, they, they would describe them as spirits or shape-shifting kings. And they said they would come out of the lake in between these three volcanoes, fly high in the sky, and then start hovering in the direction of Tikal, the, the ruins of Tikal. And, and the local lore was that these legends are 
or these lights are um, these kings looking for their their ancient home or the the ancient ruins that they looked over. And you know that was such a strange thing in that moment. You know, just being so immersed in this native folklore. That was the mindset I came out to Skinwalker Ranch with or to Space Self Research. I wanted to get the native perspective. You know, there there are tribes out there that don't often get to tell their story. They may have a completely different explanation for the activity at Skinwalker Ranch, the activity around it, um, the things in the sky. And so we said, well, let's keep this to the perspective of the direct neighbors and the tribal perspective. The entire area is basically a reservation. And so it was not difficult to find stories. And once you understand the, the dynamics of reservation with, you know, just the, the – not a lot of stories get out of there just because there's not a lot of outsiders coming in. There's not a lot of communication between on the reservation versus the outside world. And it's, it's, the, it's that way with most reservations. But a lot of people were willing to talk to us because we came with this welcoming mindset and said, we believe you. We want to know your stories. And we want to know what you've been told. We want to know um, your tribal background and, and, and what you say these things are. And we were able to meet you know many Ute um, enrolled members, Ute elders, Cree mem- uh, members of the Cree tribe, members of the Lakota tribe, and they all had their own take on what was going on. And it was this belief in that this place is somehow set apart in some way. Um, we premiered the film in Portland a couple weeks ago to about 150 people, and they really enjoyed it. We're still making some tweaks right now. It's called The Shape of Shadows. I went out with the same guys. Actually, um, same guys. Yeah. Yes. So I actually, uh, yeah. I listened to a podcast, um, uh, the Sasquatch Chronicles. So Tony Merkel was actually on there the week before uh-huh. you guys released that out there. So uh, he was, I mean, I think he was releasing that. You guys were releasing it that exact week that he was on there. Mm-hmm. I know he's friends with the host of Sasquatch Chronicles. So. Uh, I, I was looking forward to hearing when the rest of us can see the shape of shadows. I really hope it's May. Um, it's out of my hands. I did the first pass on the edit and then it was out of my hands. Um, should be up very soon. I mean, it is from what I've been told 99% finished with the final edits they were going to be making. And then from there, it's just developing a marketing plan, but I really enjoyed that team. It was cool being out there that week. We had a lot of interesting stuff happen. Uh, we found footprints that I still can't explain. It's just a for three straight films that we've gone out. We found footprints that we can't explain at all. Expedition Dogman. We found a massive uh, feline print in the Daniel Boone National Forest. I. The, the biggest feline print I have ever seen. You could feel the toes. I did not know there were mountain lions that big, nor did I know that they were in Kentucky, um, if that's what it was. And this last one, we found a track set that looks a lot like 
it, it almost looks transformational. Like these shapes of this footprint as it goes down this, this dried mud path will change. It very obviously starts out as like this almost, um, almost like a person walking. And then as it goes, it looks like it is changing to an animal, um, something that is definitely not human. It's very strange. We had several different, you know, tribal members that we brought out there and we're just like, tell us what this is. Some of them didn't want to acknowledge it. They didn't want to be near it. Um, you know, everyone loves to throw out the, the skinwalker word. But, and we did go far down that route of, of shape-shifting and skinwalker lore on the Ute Reservation. And then this last time, you mentioned the host of Sasquatch Chronicles, Wes Germer. He is, he's wonderful. We went out with him. Um, I can't say too much, but we went out with him this earlier this month and to both Oregon and Washington. And we were tracking down some Sasquatch eyewitnesses going to their locations, trying to mimic a lot of their encounters. One thing I was told that I, I never considered before that we actually had success with the last night terms of trying to have a Sasquatch encounter was, you know, don't be overly over the top about it. There's a lot of TV shows and things out there of people going in the woods. You've got to go six miles deep on a hike and and set up a trail camera. But we were told by this property owner that if you go to a property that's hot, the best thing you could do to have an experience is be human. So, do not let them know you're listening. Do not let them know you're watching. Be human. Talk. Um, if you have a camera, keep it on your person or keep it on your RV. Keep it on your house. That is the only time we ever get evidence. They said they'll never come within you know, 75, 100 feet if they know that you are n- not doing anything you know that that they know that humans yeah, if, do. If they and feel they like they're, you're stalking, if you if they feel like yeah. you're stalking, then they're they're alert to that. Interesting. So we actually had success with that the last night in the RV um, with whistles, knocks. Uh, we we felt the, that the we actually captured the RV being knocked on once. That was the very first thing we captured. Um, whistles. We would hear whistles up there. Oh, I've got a good story for you guys, but. We would hear whistles up there, and 10 seconds would go by. You would, you would think you heard a guy whistling for his dog, and then you go, wait, we're the only people up here. And, and every single thing that would happen, we would think it's human, and then we'd realize there's not going to be another person up here or another person within this close of the RV, and they're not responding to us. Um, two of our... Two people in our group got growled at. We also got something very interesting, uh, several pieces of film on infrared binoculars captured from within the RV. But every time these sounds would happen, they would stop when we stopped talking. Or if we if we said, you know, be quiet, listen, 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 and, and turn the lights on the RV, it would stop. As soon as you get back to laughing and talking and turning the lights on the RV... We would leave the, the recorder running, and then we captured all these sounds. We got some really interesting sounds the last night. But what was most interesting about that spot is that, you know, probably 
completely unrelated, but we had actually, and Antonia talked about this publicly, we had come across the vehicle belonging to a missing person. So that's yeah. That's you know, Tony talked situation. about he talked about that. That's still an yeah, yeah. He talked about that on Sasquatch Chronicles a little bit. So I know you probably can't talk anymore about that, but that uh, was a little strange. Uh, yeah. Well, so we found a car belonging to um, I don't remember the man's name, but it had out of state license plates. It was a work vehicle. We had found several different personal items. The, the vehicle was locked up. It, the road splits into two. Up on the road, we found um, pieces of clothing and shoes. This location, for whatever reason, has had several people go missing from, from this exact spot within the last few years. It was also the exact same spot that Wes Germer and his brother had had their encounter where these things, I think they said three or four came up to a vehicle were very threatening. They were incredibly scared. And that led to the, the founding of the Sasquatch Chronicles podcast. And it's a, it's a, it's a weird situation. I don't, I don't know why the, the car would be up there when we reported it. They said, they had been in contact with the family after we reported it. We called it in a second time and they told us, yes, we had found it. They were in contact with the family. He has been unaccounted for for three weeks. So it's one of those interesting places where you go 20 feet into the woods, you lose all direction because the sun does not shine in Washington state at that altitude. And you may not find your way out. Even if there's a river right there, even if there's a road right there, if you get turned around, you really may not find your way out. And so I, I hope it's not a um, suicidal situation. I hope it's not a, um, you know, I, I hope there's a simple solution and, and a good outcome, but it, it it's a very strange thing to come across. It's a weird story to tell. Um, we kind of, it was weird at first because we're like, man, we're, we're trying to make this Sasquatch movie and make it interesting. It, it kind of killed the the mood when we found out we found a vehicle of, of someone that was actually missing, possibly deceased in the area. And it's like, what, what do you do in that situation? But it's, right. it's another right. story. It took a whole different turn, right? Crazy. So when do you think – so – Obviously, you filmed all that. When when do you? What's the estimated ETA for that to come out? Uh, probably October. I think we're looking at doing two of those a year now on a pretty consistent schedule. It's like we're going to have to have you back on in October. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you've yeah. been traveling now as yeah. well. You you were just in Mexico, is that correct? Uh, yes, I was supposed to go in December. Um, my mom had made a connection with a humpback whale researcher on the west coast of Mexico. And I was supposed to go film an expedition to this uninhabited island, supposed to be the second person to film there since Jacques Cousteau was super excited about it, two days before I get rear-ended. And so <laughs> I was not able to make it back to Texas to fly out. So I canceled it. I said, well, let's go 
um, let's go in the spring. I'd like to make some more connections down there and then let's meet up again in December. There is a very specific week of December when the humpback whales arrive from Alaska and this group of researchers will go out and track them. And so I'm wanting to get more into, in addition to the treasure and paranormal stuff, get more into educational content, adventure content, and uh, just film interesting stuff. And so that was, you know, my first step into kind of zoological filmmaking, trying to make something a lot more along the lines of planet Earth. Um, and it just filmed that entire experience. Um, so I'm hoping December uh, we can get this funded and, and make that go through. So I was in the state of Nayarit in Mexico, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, love the country, love Mexico. I'm hoping to go back soon as part of my investigation into Lafitte's death on the other side, on the Caribbean side. And yeah, it, it was a wonderful trip. Loved it. Uh, got to see jungle, got to see some sloths, some, some of the loudest birds I've ever heard. Nice. So, so Christian, remind us again. How old are you? I, I am twenty six years old. Twenty six years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, the adventure you, you started you've talking had. about looking for humpback whales. I'm looking over at Jeff. I'm like, what? What haven't you done? Right. <laughs> so, so what's what's the future hold here? The next couple of months. Where are you headed? Um, nothing right now because I've filmed all these things now, and then <laughs> unfortunately, when you then film you things, the then you have work. to edit. Nice, nice. Yeah, are you still doing your podcast with your buddies? Yes, I am. We are actually about to see a movie after this. I will tell them you said hello. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I listened to – this has been a while ago, but you guys tried every single Mountain Dew known to man, I think. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I do love contests. I do love challenging myself. Um, I – consider myself a thrill seeker and a, a daredevil, but that is not anything I would recommend anyone else to do again. again? <laughs> <laughs> Those are, this is done by professionals. Do not yeah. try this at do home. Do not try at home. Yeah. Do not try Goodness at home. Gracious. Do not try at your friend's house and anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. So, you guys got anything else for Christian? Because I, I, it sounds like he's got he's got some stuff to do yet tonight. Yeah, I just want to yeah. we we just live vicariously through you. So That's we watch right. your adventures yeah. on Facebook and think, oh my god, why didn't we do this when we were twenties? <laughs> so you you've also got a blog on your uh, web page, I believe, correct? Yeah, I, I just started that. I, I thought um, if I've got all this stuff on my mind and and I like educating people about things why can't i write something every day or, or a few times a week and just you get to learn something new whether it's you know an interesting city i've been to that that there's a, a unique side to it or here's a treasure legend you've never heard um I, I just enjoy writing things inspiring people getting getting stuff out there i was going to write this week about the i don't know if you guys heard but there's another wave of cattle mutilations in texas in East Texas. I just saw something about that online, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a direct mirror of something that happened in 1975 and in, in January and February, 1975 in Texas, there was a, 
cattle mutilation wave, and it continued across, I think, 11 states in 1975, and the FBI got involved. They could never figure it out. But the, the key markers were the same, and this did not make the film, but I did do quite a bit of research into cattle mutilations. It, it's a big part of Skinwalker Ranch history and the history of the Uinta Basin. We did speak to one eyewitness who he sold horses to Terry Sherman, the original owner of Skinwalker Ranch. And he shared with us some photos and a, a story that's never been shared before about a mutilation that no one's ever heard about. And, um, that was interesting. It's one of those things that, you know, I've got my convictions about it. And then there's always that one case you hear about that completely blows that wide open. Wow. So why don't you give our listeners your webpage address so they can go check your blog out. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, you can find me anywhere online, any social media site at Christian B. Roper, or you can find my website at ChristianBRoper.com. It's a good deal, good deal. Well, we'd like to thank you for taking time out of your obviously busy schedule to hang out with us for 50 minutes or so. It's, it's been a pleasure, man, as yeah, usual. Yeah, all I can say is just, you know, keep keep telling these stories, you know, because, you know, Dwayne says it jokingly, we're living vicariously through you, but it's not just us. <laughs> it's, I mean, not everybody, again, has the opportunity or the will to to do the things you're doing, but that that doesn't mean, you know, we aren't interested in 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 hearing everything that you discover out there. So, right. keep it up. Yeah, good deal. Well, I've, good deal. Yeah, well, I've yeah. Had a lot of fun doing it, and I really appreciate your support. Um, this is, you know, my favorite podcast to call into and talk randomness. <laughs> McCool. <Yeah. laughs> we, Our listeners can't. If see you guys need to talk to you about only, the NFL Chris, draft, that's fine. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever. Oh, so, whatever. Yeah, so our listeners can't see it, but Christian's got our Cross the Line 1524 T-shirt on. So that's pretty cool. Did you wear that out in, in Utah or Skinwalker or Oregon or any place? I mean, I, uh, I've i worn it everywhere. I do not know if it appears on camera, but I have brought it with me everywhere. I uh, Typically bring awesome. it was on the I'm dog man the dog, dog man yeah, film yeah. we caught it on there so yeah that's pretty cool yeah pretty cool so if across the line fifteen twenty four I'm Alan Stanger with Dwayne Bischoff Scotty Bourbon Jeff Montag Mike Gardner and our very special guest Christian Roper Indiana on tap the twenty twenty three schedule is out and you're gonna want to mark your calendars. The first one kicks off on March 11th. It's a second annual Newcastle on Tap for St. Paddy's Day. The next one is May 6th, the seventh annual Savor Lebanon. Then May 20th, the third annual Tipton on Tap in Tipton, Indiana. It'll be at the town square. The next one's June 24th in Anderson. It's the eighth annual Anderson on Tap. After that, we move to Rushville, Indiana for the annual Rushville Libations on July 29th. From there, we come back to our hometown in Brookville, Indiana for the third annual Brookville on Tap Beer and Bourbon Festival. We round things out on September 23rd. It's the sixth annual Loggers and Lawrence Oktoberfest. These are all sponsored by Indiana on Tap. We'll have more information on each one of the events as they get closer. And guess what? 
Across the Line 1524 crew will be there. You can go check out the calendar events on indianaontap.com. Like I said, we'll be there, and each week we'll talk a little bit more about the upcoming events. Indiana on Tap, craft distillers, craft breweries, and local wineries. Go check them out. Did you know that beef jerky is packed with protein and is considered a healthy snack? Check out Stanger Sugar Shack Gourmet Beef Jerky. 100% pure beef with no fillers or additive. MSG free and most flavors are gluten free. If you're eating jerky that has a reddish tint to it, give us a try and see what gourmet jerky tastes like. Our cuts of meat are from the brisket, not ground up, not processed, pure 100% beef. Our flavors include maple pepper, our original lakeside brisket. We have ghost pepper flavor. We have blazing beef sriracha flavor. Gotta try our speakeasy bourbon, our campfire barbecue, and our totally teriyaki flavor. Our favorite though is our old fashioned maple bacon jerky. That's right, we have maple bacon jerky. You can find all of our jerky at all the Gilman Home Center stores throughout Indiana and Ohio, at the Easy Stop Fuel Mart, State Route 46 in St. Leon, Indiana, and of course online at StangerSugarShack.com. Use discount code 1524 to receive a special 10% discount on any online order. Stanger Sugar Shack Gourmet Jerky, what jerky should be. You've been listening to Cross the Line 1524 with all the guys, whether we're at the Rusted Nail Speakeasy or out on the road. You know we always have a great time. Hey, check out our webpage at www.crossthelline1524.com we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Check out Podcast 1524 on Twitter and Cross the Line 15 slash 24 on Facebook.